speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 28 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and on this episode, I am going to complete my coverage of season one of The Adventures of Superman with two episodes that really couldn't be any different from each other. The first episode I'm going to cover on this show is The Ghost Wolf, and that will bring us to the Pacific Northwest as Perry White sends his three top reporters, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen, to Oregon to find out why the mill isn't producing the proper pulp wood for the Daily Planet to create paper with which to produce its product. So we're going to find some intrigue up at the border there, and is it a ghost wolf? Is it not? We don't know. We'll take that journey together. And then we're going to finish off Season 1 by coming back to Metropolis in one of the most memorable episodes of the series, and one of my favorite episodes of the series, Crime Wave, which will see Superman wage a one-man war against organized crime in Metropolis, which he hopes will culminate in him finding the number one man behind all the racketeering in the city. And he's going to be surprised when he finds out who it is. And I hope you are going to be surprised. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo. And then I'm going to come back with The Ghost Wolf. Hang around, folks. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain. And good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, welcome back, folks. Here we go with, with Ghost Wolf. Original broadcast date was February 20th, 1953. This episode was written by Dick Hamilton and directed by Lee Sholem. Guest cast included Jane Adams as Babette Dulac, Lou Krugman as Jacques Olivier, Stanley Andrews as Sam Garvin, Harold Goodwin as the train conductor. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. The Lone Timber Pine Company in Oregon that supplies the Daily Planet with its pulpwood for paper, has been plagued by the unusual. The superstitious lumberjack employees have seen what appears to be a beautiful woman that can transform into a wolf. The men are clearly frightened by this, as many have seen animal footprints that have changed into those of a human. Foreman Sam Garvin is worried because the last man, a French-Canadian named Jacques Olivier, has left the logging camp never to return. I was watching you through the binoculars, Olivier. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. A Canuck Jack with an axe running away from a wolf. One wolf. You think I am coward, eh? Ask any man from Quebec to Seattle, and he tell you that Jacques Olivier is not afraid of any man or beast in all not wood. Except a wolf, a timber wolf. Oui, monsieur. But this is not a true wolf. This is a loup garou, a werewolf. What makes you think so? I know. I track him for maybe two, three hundred yards in the soft sand by the brook. And by God, what do you think? What? Wolf tracks stop and change into a track of woman. This track I do not follow. So you think a wolf turned into a woman, eh? I am sorry, Monsieur Gavin, but I can no longer stay here. And if you are a wise man, I think you will not stay also. C'est fini. Adieu. Garvin has made a telephone call to Planet Editor Perry White. Now, wait a minute, Garvin. Do you mean to tell me that every man in the camp has quit? And all because of a lot of stupid nonsense about a werewolf? Yes, sir. It's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard of. Now, you listen to me, Garvin. This sounds like dirty work. 
Someone's out to get us because they know we're short of paper. All that balderdash about a werewolf is just a blind. I'll send someone up there to investigate. You just stand by until they get there. Yes, sir. Uh, Garvin, you're not scared, are you? Well, I don't know, Mr. White. Now, don't you worry about anything. You just wait until my people get there. Okay? Yes, sir. Okay, Garvin. Goodbye. Who has sent reporters Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen to investigate the eerie happenings. Well, come in, Kent. Close the door. Better lock it. Lock it? Yeah, lock it. Now, what I have to say to you is strictly confidential. That particularly goes for you, Olson. Yes, sir. I've just had a long-distance call from Sam Garvin out in Oregon. He's the boss of the timber company from which we get most of our pulpwood. Yes, doesn't the planet own that company? Yes, bought it in 47. Well, anyway, there seems to be some trouble out there. What kind of trouble? All kinds. Forest fires, machinery breakdowns, and a lot of wild tales about a werewolf that scared all the lumberjacks off the job. Golly. Now, we can't run a newspaper without paper, and we can't make paper without pulpwood. What do you want us to do, Chief? I want the three of you to take a trip up there and see what's going on. What's Garvin think? Well, the connection wasn't very good, but I got the impression he's scared. And Garvin's not an easy man to scare. He doesn't believe there is a werewolf, does he? Who knows? Golly, what if there really is? Oh, come on, Jim. That's just an old superstition that people can change themselves into wolves and vice versa. Now, they're holding three seats for you on Consolidated Flight 64. And your plane leaves in exactly 53 and one-half minutes. But, but I haven't a thing to wear. What woman ever did? Now get going. Yes, sir. Okay, Chief. Oh, all right. Lois Clark and Jimmy are on a train that goes to the Lone Pine Timber Company. I said I'll feel better when we get past the bridge at Devil's Gorge. Oh. Too many things been happening around here. Switches left open, fish plates pried up, rails split. But this train has been close to wreck five times in the past two weeks. Then why does the engineer go so fast? Wants to make Camp 4 dark, likely. Golly, if we had a wreck going at this speed, we'd wind up right down in the bottom of the gorge. That's what we'd do. I think I'll take a little walk. Walk? Where? Up front. Get a better view. If you see that engineer, tell him we don't mind getting into camp after dark. And it may get into a sixth, as the wood supporting the tracks on Devil's Gorge Bridge has been cut. Seeing the danger to his friends, Clark has changed into Superman. The Man of Steel holds up the bridge so the train get past safely. Lois and Jimmy are surprised to learn from the conductor that the trestle has collapsed. Great jumping Judas! What is it? What happened? The trestle over Devil's Gorge had collapsed right after we passed over. But where? I don't see anything. Neither do I. But you can't see it now. It's around the bend. Clark, do you know what just happened? What? She must have kept the trestle. It collapsed right after we passed over it. It did. Don't you understand? We were almost killed. Hmm. Well, I like that. We, we miss getting killed by the skin of our teeth, and all you have to say is, hmm. What do you expect me to say? Oh, skip it. Now, Jimmy, Lois, and Clark have arrived at the Lone Pine Timber Company without any further incidents. They are recounting their adventure to Sam Garvin, who in turn tells them what has happened in the camp since the werewolf sightings. I can't understand that business about the trestle. It's really very simple, Mr. Garvin. Someone knew we were coming. Someone who didn't want us to get here. Whoever that someone is, he's playing for keeps. But we don't know that for sure. It could have been an old timber that rotted out. That's an interesting explanation, Mr. Garvin. One that would never have occurred to me. Of course, I'm only guessing. Have you ever seen this werewolf, Mr. Garvin, or this wolf woman it's supposed to turn into? I only know what the men told me when they quit, one after another. The last one pulled out yesterday, Jacques Olivier. He said he trailed it and saw where the wolf tracks turned into a woman's track. You don't believe that, do you? I don't know what to think anymore, Mr. Kent. I better go and fix you folks a place to sleep. It's getting late. Can I help you? No, thanks. I can make out. He looks honest enough, don't you think? You can't judge people by their looks. Mr. Garvin's playing it close to his vest. He isn't telling us everything he knows. Maybe he will later. And if he doesn't? We'll dig it out the hard way. That night, sleeping arrangements have been made. Clark and Jimmy go to the big bunkhouse that has 112 beds and Lois stays in the timekeeper's cabin. In the darkness, a woman stalks outside. She is soon replaced with a wolf that jumps through the quarter's open window. Creature's objective, to frighten Lois Lane. Lois's scream has awakened Clark, Jimmy, and Garvin. However, the wolf is now gone. I don't care what any of you say. I tell you that wolf was in this cabin right there. But, Miss Lane... How I... many times do I have to tell you he came in that window? I'll be right back. Where do you think you're going? I'll take a look around. You'll do nothing of the kind. If you folks don't need me anymore, I'll say good night. Good night, Mr. Garvin. 
I think it'd be a good idea if we all turned in. Oh, you do, do you? Why is it, Clark, every time trouble starts, you want to sneak off someplace? The trouble's over now, isn't it? I'm not so sure. Did you notice that Garvin was fully dressed? He hadn't even been to bed. Yes, I did. Why? I don't know, Lois. All right, Clark, don't cooperate. But for once, you're going to stick around and be useful. All right. How would you suggest that I stick around and be useful? Well, for one thing, you can help me move my things into that bunkhouse with you and Jim. Well, now, wait a minute. That's the with men's bunkhouse. With 112 bunks, I'll have plenty of privacy. You and Jim can sleep at one end, and I'll sleep in the other. But if you think I'm going to stay in this shack alone here tonight, you're nuts. Come on. Okay. In spite of being shaken up, Lois goes on with her daily routine. As she freshens up at a nearby spring, she is once again scared by the wolf. This time, she faints. Clark revives her, and with Jimmy's help, takes her to the cookhouse for some coffee. But there's only one problem. A golden earring Lois had found before meeting up with the wolf is missing. Well, I'm going out and look around, see if I can't pick up any clues. Just be sure some of the clues don't pick you up, Mr. Kent. Don't worry, Mr. Garvin. I'll be careful. Let me finish my coffee and I'll go with you. No, Lois, I want you and Jim to stay right here until I get back. Now, just a minute, Mr. Kent. Since when did you start giving orders around here? No one's giving any orders, Lois. I'm just asking you to wait here till I get back. And that goes for you, too, Jim. Excuse me. All right, Jim, are we mice or men? Well, I don't know, Miss Wayne. I mean, of course we're not mice, but maybe Mr. Kent's right. And Mr. Kent may be overwhelmed with the idea of his own importance, too. Don't forget, the Chief sent us all out here to help clear up this mystery. Well, if you're going, I'm going with you. Have you got a gun or some kind of a pistol I could borrow? Do you know anything about guns? Well, not much, but I... Then you're better off without one. Sometimes guns can be more dangerous than other things. We can get a couple of clubs. Come on, Jim. Meanwhile, Garvin is also searching for clues to the wolf sightings while Jacques Olivier has started a forest fire. Lois and Jimmy are trapped in the blaze and animals are trying their best to escape. Superman has taken Lois and Jimmy to a safe place away from the fire. As the Man of Steel tries to figure out a way to deal with the Inferno, Garvin has discovered Olivier's true motive for trying to ruin the Lone Pine Timber Company. No, Jacques, I will not let him kill. But this man kill your father, steal all your timber. That's a lie and you know it. Are you old King Dulac's daughter? Oui, monsieur. You kill King Dulac. You steal all his timberland. That is what he tell me. Your father died of pneumonia at the St. Joseph's Hospital in Seattle. And all the money for this timberland was deposited in the Seattle Bank to your credit. I put it there myself. How could you do this? Why did you try to wreck my outfit, Olivier? What did you expect to gain? This timber belonged to Babette. She promised to marry me. And it belonged to me. Beat! The wolf attacks Olivier before he can shoot Garvin. Superman is swooped in to knock out Olivier before he can kill Garvin, Babette, and her wolf. Now, as Garvin guards the unconscious Olivier, the last son of Krypton can now deal with the forest fire. At the end of the wire scrape yet? I still don't understand what your plan is. Very simple. There's lightning above those clouds. If I can get the end of this wire up there and get a bolt to strike it, you'll see. Wish me luck. Good luck. Bon chance. Superman's plan has worked. The flames have been put out, and the woods are safe, thanks to Mother Nature and Superman. Lois, Jimmy, Garvin, Bobette, and her wolf are back at the Lone Pine Timber Company celebrating the logging camp's new lease on life. You see, he's like a dog at heart. A very kind dog. He's been my pet since he was a little cub. He even looks a little like a dog now that I, that I know he's not a wild wolf. Clark! Hello. Clark, do you realize what's happened? Superman caught the guy that started the forest fire. Not only that, he made it rain to put out the fire. We oui, he made this rain. This wonderful superarm. Too bad you can't get him to stop it. All right. Just one quick note about this episode. You've heard Bob Fisher and I speak in the past about how there was an episode in which the wire broke while Superman was taken off. Well, this is the episode in which that happened, as... During production, the, the wires snapped on takeoff, causing George Reeves to fall 10 feet. And this is, was the impetus for all future takeoffs having been achieved with the springboard effect and Superman bouncing out of the camera range. Just a fun note about uh, the magic of the TV from the 1950s. So, this episode starts with a lot of stock footage. I just want to yell, Timber! Down go the trees and some stock footage of lumberjacks doing their job. Obviously, there are no woods like this in the Northeast where Metropolis is set to be set most of the time, and we will get a confirmation from Perry White that this is in Oregon, which in the Pacific Northwest heavily wooded. Now, after about two minutes of stock footage, we finally get to somebody making a phone call to the Daily Planet. You might recognize this guy on the phone, but only if you've watched Mole Men along with the show. 
I mean, according to the discs, The Unknown People was aired after this episode. In case you haven't recognized who that is, because either you haven't watched Mole Men yet, and if you haven't watched it yet, I really hope you're going to go back and listen to episode 16. Bob Fisher and I did a great talk about that movie. And if you have watched Mole Men and you don't re remember this, this particular face, well, I'll forgive you because that was at least 12 weeks ago. Well, anyway, that is Stanley Andrews, the man who played a rather ineffective sheriff in Superman and the Mole Men in the town of Silvers. Of course, right here in this scene, we don't get to hear that rich baritone voice of Andrews, but we will hear it later. Apparently, if what I'm gleaning from this phone call Perry is receiving is correct, the Daily Planet gets its paper directly from the paper mill and not a distributor. Well, my first question to somebody who works in the newspaper industry is why exactly is Perry White ordering paper? That's not usually the, the editor's job. That's usually a job for the people working in the press room. But in the interest of convenience and because, well, the show is not going to hire somebody else to make a phone call, Perry is going to deal with this in the interest of expediency. So, now we get our first look of Jacques Olivier. He's looking really scared as the wolf stares him down. And then we get the voice. That rich, deep, baritone voice of Stanley Andrews from that you would recognize from Superman in the Moment. And he's talking to Olivier here. And apparently Olivier believes this is the werewolf because he is regaling Garvin with a story about how the wolf has turned into a woman. He's off to the races. Garvin doesn't believe it, but he's going to make a phone call to Perry White probably to tell him the latest news. And I will say one thing about this show. I do like that the show has been consistent about certain details. Bob and I had mentioned on a previous episode that the show has been pretty consistent about the fact that Clark tends to leave the Daily Planet office around 8 o'clock. And this is the third time that we have heard the phone number for the Daily Planet spoken on the screen. And each time it's been Metropolis 60500. So even though... You know, people weren't really watching a bunch of these episodes right in a row and only watched them on a weekly basis. I like the fact that the writers have been paying attention to such details, you know, just kind of as a matter of continuity. So, very cool. It's hard enough to keep that stuff straight today that they did it back then. I find even more great. Perry reacts to the story that Garvin is telling him about a werewolf, basically about how you would expect Perry to respond to it, by calling it stupid nonsense. I mean... He's a man who only believes in what he can explain. So his only notion is that someone is trying to keep him from getting the paper necessary to print the Daily Planet. To him, there's no werewolves. The only thing he can think of is that somebody has an axe to grind with the Daily Planet and that he's trying to prevent them from getting their paper in an attempt to shut them down. That will bring in the trio, as Perry sends in for Clark, Lois, and Jimmy. And Clark is quite surprised when Perry asks him to lock the door. You know, that alone will give everyone in the room the clue that this is important most important to the security of the paper. And Perry doubles down on that when he tells everybody that, is, that this is strictly confidential. And I like the nod to Jimmy that confidentiality is double for him, and we all know that Jimmy can be a bit of a blabbermouth. This is not the last time that Perry will double down on the confidentiality stuff to Jimmy. Now, as soon as Perry mentioned that there might be a werewolf, Jimmy is all over that. He believes there's a werewolf because Jimmy will believe anything. If you told Jimmy the sky was green, he would believe it. And we also get reminded here that Lois is a woman, and she because she complains that she has nothing to wear, which is a strange line to throw into this scene here. And I think it was supposed to be funny, and if it did, it fell kind of flat. You know, one of the things that this show has done very well is that, and this is something that we've done differently today, obviously, but most of the time, the fact that Lois is a woman is pretty much ignored. She's just treated as one of the Daily Planet staff, which is good as far as treating women equally, which is something everybody should do in the workplace. But this was not always the case in the 1950s. But every once in a while, the show will throw in these little digs at women about what women never had anything to wear, and there'll be a line in season two in Semi-Private Eye that could be construed as insulting to women by male audiences. It's just one of those things with the time. You wouldn't really see it today, but if you did, it would be something that's played for laughs. If it was being played for laughs here, it really didn't work. So, anyway, they were off on the plane, and the shots of the wheels on the plane reminds me a lot of what we saw last week in Czar of the Underworld, without doing a uh, close inspection of 
Czar. It could even be the same flying shots. I don't know. And there's a nice stock shot as they're approaching of some pine tree covered mountains. And I'm also always a sucker for a good shot of a train locomotive going across my screen, even if it is stock footage. Now we're on the train with Lois, Clark, Jimmy, and, and the, uh, I guess he's the conductor. And if you look closely at this shot, you can already see that Lois and Jimmy are in there. Woodland Lumberjack outfit, so apparently Lois did have something to wear to the Pacific Northwest. And Clark is in his business suit. His outfit doesn't change for anything. Once in a great while, we will see Clark wear a different outfit, but he's still going to wear his regular business suit to, uh, to the Lone Pine Timber Company. And as they're traveling by train, we're getting regaled with some strange doings on the railroad. So apparently the problems that have been going on at Lone Pine Timber are not just limber to the lumberjacks. And I love that the line that the train has nearly wrecked five times since Clark out for a walk. He obviously wants to check things out, so there's some intrigue from the moment they arrive, and we find, when Clark goes out to the caboose, we find out that somebody cut the bridge, and that sends Clark changing into Superman, as the bridge is about to fall, but Superman holds it up in a nice shot, showing his strength. And as soon as the train passes over, the bridge crashes down. I just love seeing super feats in this show. It's not always possible with the, with the technology available in the early 1950s, but anytime this show can put in a super feat, showing Superman holding something up, saving a train, I'm all for that. These effects might look cheap now, but back then this was all state-of-the-art work. Nobody else was doing this at the time, and this show pulls it off very well. Lois and Jimmy are very panicked about almost having died, and Clark is extremely indifferent to it. And there's a great bit of acting here by Phyllis Coates, who... She's just completely indignant about Clark's indifference. So this episode is moving pretty quickly. We're about 10 minutes in, and everybody's already almost been killed once. The near accident at the bridge has Lois, Clark, and Jimmy suspicious. But even Garvin is just as unconcerned as Clark is. I mean, well, Clark is concerned now that he's with Garvin, but Garvin suggests it could be rotten timber, and Clark gives this snarky line how that never would have occurred to me. It almost makes you think that he's starting to suspect Garvin a little bit. Garvin seems unconcerned that they were almost killed. Garvin was really the only person that we know of that knew the planet staff was coming. So, is he hiding something? I don't know. And there's a great little bit of dialogue between Lois and Clark when Garvin leaves the room. You know, she's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, but Clark is sensing that something doesn't add up here. And you hear it in the way he said earlier that the rotting timber wouldn't occur to him. It was very sarcastic, very patronizing to Garvin, like, like he's almost suggesting without saying that he thinks Garvin might be behind this. And then Clark says, they'll dig it out the hard way. Clark is as tough a newsman as it comes on this show. And when George Reeves says that, I believe him. I believe he will dig this out of him the hard way, as Clark Kent. That kind of bulldog attitude that Clark Kent shows here and that he showed just about in every episode of season one, really helped this Clark Kent stand out from other interpretations of the character on the screen. So they go to the timekeeper's cabin to give Lois a place to stay for the night. Carvin takes down one of the uh, scantily clad pinups on the wall left by one of the, by the timekeeper. But when Garvin mentions that there may not be another timekeeper, Jimmy starts to say something about the fact such a thing will happen on the Daily Planet, but Clark stops him. And, you know, there you go, Jimmy, almost blabbing already. Now, I did like Lois' reaction to Garvin taking down the pinup, commenting that the next timekeeper might like the art gallery. It might not be her decoration of choice, but she's definitely showing that she's not bothered by it. Just as Lois says she doesn't believe in werewolves, we hear a wolf howl. Nice little comedic timing there. And it's enough to frighten Jimmy, even though we know it's probably not a werewolf. Werewolves we don't think exist. Clark doesn't believe in them, and I'm sure they don't want Jimmy to believe. But there is one thing in this episode scarier than werewolves, and that's got to be the outfit that Jimmy is wearing. All plaid is frightening enough. And thank God this episode is not in color. I can only imagine the awful reds and blacks. Though so anyway, the wildlife outside is enough to convince Lois to lock the door, but then of course she opens the window to look out. You know, some of these scenes in the rural areas are giving me a very Moleman-type feeling. And that scene at the window reminds me heavily of the scene where Lois is in Pop Shannon's cabin on the phone, and the mole men come up. You don't expect the mole men to come up through the window. But there is no mole man coming through the window in this episode. It's going to be a wolf. A wolf with a woman attached to it. We see the woman, and then we see the wolf. We do not see the woman and the wolf together. And so could it be a werewolf? I don't know. Anyway, Lois is trying to sleep as the wolf comes into the cabin window. And then we get a pretty awesome Phyllis coat screen. But you know what? As Bob Fisher would say, every Phyllis coat screen is an awesome Phyllis coat screen. 
And it wakes Clark up out of bed. He's still in his pajamas. Garvin doesn't look as though he was sleeping. He's out with his rifle, and he's fully dressed. And then, after Lois screams, the wolf makes this sound, almost as though it were laughing. Very creepy. You know, and then we're treated to a very awesome shot of the woman's shadow on the wall of the cabin, right next to the open window. Bob and I recently talked when we covered the Evil 3 about the use of shadows in the basement scene, where Perry and Jimmy were attacked. And those shadows work there, and they are equally effective here. Now, after everything is over, Garvin is very quick to leave. And Lois points out that he was fully dressed, which I noticed right away when she came in. And that is an interesting question. Why is Garvin fully dressed in the middle of the night when everybody else was asleep already? So, Clark is about to do what he does best. He wants to leave. He wants to go home and go, or go back to the cabin and go back to bed. Well, obviously, we know that he wanted to become Superman, but no one knows that. So, I love how panicked Lois is here. I mean, and why shouldn't she be? She just found a wild animal in her cabin. And even though there's no explanation for why it didn't attack her or where it went, I mean, it could be that her scream scared it off. Or maybe it just wanted to come in and laugh at her. Why wouldn't she be afraid? I'd be afraid, and I wouldn't want to sleep alone after that. And we, as the viewers, still have that question of who was the angry woman scowling toward the wolf. Anyway, the next morning, Lois goes by the stream to freshen up. She finds an earring in the grass, and the wolf scares her into fainting. So that happened pretty quickly. Clark chases after her, and when Clark leaves, Garvin just gives off this smirk. And he doesn't follow Clark, and he's still acting awfully suspicious here. This episode is doing everything it can to make you think that Garvin is the man behind whatever is going on out here. And another piece of consistency among character that we've seen throughout pretty much since Superman and the Mole Men is that Lois doesn't care for the country. She complained about going to Silsby. She complained about going to that little mining town, Carbide and Rescue. And she is not really too happy with the country here. So wolves and mole men and mines are not her thing. And for the third time, Clark says he's leaving. And Garvin makes another statement that can almost be seen as threat. This is the third time Clark has tried to leave them behind. And this is the third time Lois has fought him on it. But this time, he manages to get away and do whatever it is he's going to do. But Lois, as you know Lois, she's not content to sit and wait around for Clark to come back. So she asks for a gun, but Garvin doesn't give her one, and she doesn't know much about them. And the way he says this can seem a little sinister, but you know what? This is sound advice. It's smart not to give an untrained person a gun in the middle of the woods. But like I said, his the way he's acting is just a little too sinister for me to believe he's not giving Lois a gun just for, because he's concerned about Lois' safety. Now we see Jacques Olivier again, setting a fire and burning down the woods. So much for developing a mystery. The mystery has been solved by showing us that Olivier is burning the woods down. So obviously he's involved in what's going on here. We don't know why yet, but we're going to find out soon. Now the show's theme music is ramping up as the fire rages out of control and Jimmy and Lois are stuck in it. We get a great shot of Superman running through the fire and saving what I believe was a beaver. I'm not necessarily sure why that was important, but... Apparently, saving the beavers is important to somebody. Superman catches up to Lois and Jimmy, and I love how he wraps them up in his indestructible cape. And this was a nice transition here. Obviously, he wraps them up, and the camera dissolves to them a safe distance away. The technology at this time can't show Superman flying them both away. So, the little trick with the cape, and does the job to show that Superman has rescued them from their predicament. It's not nearly as bad as what will become known in the 90s as the Dean Cain cape flutter which we'll talk about when I get to Lois and Clark and down the road. Garvin is, is still out in the woods. He just got, he got himself clubbed by Olivier, so he's not in on it. Generally, people don't club people that they're working with. And now we find out the plot. Because in a stunning, a bad guy tells all speech, which is not at all cliched, Olivier thinks Garvin killed Bobette's father and stole the timber. And of course, Garvin denies it as he put the trust money into Bobette's account himself and... Apparently, Olivier wants to marry her for the timber, because once he marries her, it'll all become his. Nice guy. This is kind of similar logic to what we saw in Riddle of the Chinese Jade, when Harry Wong didn't want to see Lu Sung give up the Jade statue, remember? So, Olivier continues to show how much of a man of the year he is by clubbing the wolf. If Peter were around in the 1950s, it'd be all over him. And this is when Superman shows up and decks Olivier, because, well, that's what Superman does in Season 1. He comes in, throws punches, and gets the job done. And now Superman is going to work on a bit of a science project as he sets up this contraption to draw in the lightning. The takeoff here is where the wire snapped, dropping George Reeves. This shows us why the springboard was developed. In the commentary for Crime Wave, 
Chuck Harder said George wasn't too happy that they replaced the wire takeoffs with the springboard, but that kind of doesn't jive with other things that I've heard from people like Jack Larson and other people involved in the production that, from what I heard, once the wires broke, George decided there, there would be no more wire takeoffs. And that's what brought us to the springboard technique, which works just as well. It shows Superman taking off with a great deal of power, and I like that. And Superman flies up with his wire and makes it rain after it gets struck by lightning. Even the wolf is watching. And once everything is over, you learn that apparently the wolf is domesticated. And Lois is holding the beaver that Superman saved. So that's that. And that's the ghost wolf. Not a bad episode. Better than I recall. It had super feats, drama, mystery. You know, everything you would expect from a season one. Even though it did fall into the trap of the villain tell-all exposition at the end. But not a bad episode. There's better, and there will be better after a quick break. Because I'm going to play a promo, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about Crime Wave. Hang around, folks. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com all right, welcome back, folks. And now we're going to head into the final episode of season one proper, Crime Wave. And this is an episode that I have very fond memories of. I have had this episode since I was a kid. This was on one of those VHS volumes. It was on volume two of what was called the TV's Best Adventures of Superman. These volumes, I've mentioned them before, usually had... Two episodes of The Adventures of Superman, a black and white in the color, and a Fleischer cartoon. This episode, Crime Wave, was on Volume 2, and it was coupled with The Mechanical Monsters, the second Fleischer short to be released, and the next-to-last episode of The Adventures of Superman, The Perils of Superman, which was directed by George Reeves. And as the first volume had the first and the last episode of the series, it's almost appropriate that Volume 2 had the last episode of Season 1 proper which was Crime Wave. This episode was originally broadcast on February 27, 1953. It was written by Ben Peter Freeman and directed by Tommy Carr. John Eldridge played the role of Walter Canby. Philip Van Zandt was Nick Maroney. Al Eben was Big Ed Bullock. Joseph Mel was The Professor. Barbara Fuller was Sally. Bobby Barber was Tony the, the Masseur. And Stephen Carr played the voice of Murphy. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Crime is running rampant on the streets of Metropolis. Organized crime in the Metropolis can be stamped out. And it will be stamped out. Inspector William J. Henderson has promised a full cooperation of the police department. And the newly organized Committee for Clean Government, headed by Walter Camby, prominent attorney, has thrown its full support behind our campaign. And now for the big surprise I promised you. The first citizen of Metropolis has promised his aid in putting the mobsters and racketeers behind bars. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Superman. Gradually, the public enemies of Metropolis are brought to justice, and Superman has pledged to wage war against all 12 crime bosses until the mysterious number one man is put behind bars for good. This is Carlton Avery, your midday reporter bringing you the noon roundup of city and state news. Like an avenging angel sweeping all before him, the first citizen of Metropolis, the one and only Superman, continues his sensational war against crime. Addressing a cheering crowd of 20,000 irate citizens at a mass meeting in the Metropolis Auditorium last night, Superman named the 12 leading public enemies pledged himself to see to it that each and every one of them would either be run out of town or put behind bars. Five of the gangsters have already been eliminated, and only a few hours ago, 
speaking at a breakfast meeting of the Women's Federation, Superman indicated that Bill Shortcake Mitchell, long notorious as a slot machine racketeer, was no longer an enemy of the public. Further indicated that Duke Pisano was next on the list. The number one man has one solution to this problem, it's demand to steal. They picked up Pisano yesterday and Mitchell the day before. They fell into jails with our boys, and Superman says Ed and me are next on his list. What are we going to do? Hold it, Tony. I wanted to see how far they'd go. Well, they've gone far enough. If they want to fight, we'll give them one. Spread the word around. From here on in, everything goes. Pour it on. Now you're talking. Come on, Nick. Okay, Tony. Even though the gangs of Metropolis are giving everything they've got in their war with the police and Superman, the Man of Steel is fighting back even harder. The entire nation has its eyes trained on Metropolis, where the mighty Superman is battling the hoodlums, racketeers, and strong-arm men who have held the city in a reign of terror. The city jail is filled to overflowing, and those mobsters still at large are cowering with fear as Superman continues his crusade against organized crime with unabated fury. Here's a bulletin which just came in. Nick Moroni, public enemy number three, has just been taken into custody. And here is the latest news in Superman's sensational one-man war against organized crime. Big Ed Bullock, generally acknowledged the number two crime boss of the city of Metropolis, was caught in the dragnet today, less than an hour after Superman brought public enemy number three, Nick Maroney, in for questioning. It is understood that Police Inspector Henderson will put both racketeers through a rigorous grilling. Although the police admit having nothing on either Maroney or Bullock, they hope to learn from them the identity of the number one man who controls the far-flung city and state crime empire. Up to a few minutes ago, reports from police headquarters indicated that neither Maroney nor Bullock would talk and that efforts were being made to secure their release on bail. It is understood that Superman is standing by at headquarters in the hope that one of the gangsters will break and reveal the identity of the number one man. And that is how the situation stands at the moment. Although 11 known racketeers have been taken into custody, the identity of the number one man, the big boss, is still shrouded in mystery. In spite of all the racketeers that hoodlums under his command being in prison, the number one man has a plan to kill Superman. So we did like you said, poured it on, and what did it get us? A lot of broken heads. We're practically out of business, boss. I never took such a sweat as that copper Henderson gave me before the mouthpiece put up the bail. You're not kidding. You fellas are getting panicky. Relax. Relax? Yeah, everything's gonna be all right. We're gonna take care of Superman. We're going to kill him. Kill Superman? I got news for you, boss. Superman can't be killed. I say he can, and I know how. All we have to do is contact Superman and get him to come to a little place that I've got rigged up. Okay, Sally, take over. I'm gonna find out, if I can, who's closest to him, who his friends are. We know he has some connections with the Daily Planet. I'll start from there. What about us? You lay low till Sally brings in a report. See you. Thanks to some film and information taken by Sally, the number one man can set his vicious plot against Superman into motion. There's even footage of Clark Kent entering an alley and Superman exiting from the same place. The number one man makes a telephone call to Clark Kent. You wanted me, Chief? Yes, Inspector Henderson just phoned. Kent, we can't keep on needling the police to look for a man who doesn't exist. It's a waste of the taxpayers' money. That's what I say. This number one man is a myth. But I, he isn't, I tell you, as a matter of... Yes? Just a minute. For you, Kent. Thank you. Clark Kent speaking. You don't know me, Mr. Kent, but I'm calling for the number one man the police and Superman are trying to find. Yes? Go ahead. He'd like to get together with Superman and make a deal. Sorry, no deals. Just a minute. He says Superman won't make a deal. I didn't think he would. Tell him I'll give myself up. What? Tell him to have Superman on Dover's Cliff near Willow Falls at 11 o'clock tonight. But... Tell him. Listen, Mr. Kent. Dover's Cliff near Willow Falls, 11 o'clock. Right. He'll be there. Well. Well, what? It may be a trap, or it might be the payoff. Hold page one till you hear from me, Chief. Where are you going? Come back here! Editor Perry White and reporters Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are waiting on Clark Kent to bring them the page one exclusive on the number one man for the Daily Planet's Bulldog edition. They may have quite some time to wait for Superman as... I had an appointment here. Uh, yeah, you, you wanted to see the boss. This is him. Come on over and meet him. What's the matter, you afraid? No. 
I'm not afraid. Has been trapped in a room with strange panels by Big Ed Bullock, Nick Maroney, and someone else calling themselves the Professor. The Professor's machines were designed to kill Superman by bombarding him with electricity. The last son of Krypton rises in pain until he falls to the ground. The Professor, Maroney, and Bullock enter the chamber and learn the number one man's plan had worked. Superman is dead. The number one man has come out of hiding to celebrate his enemy's death. He is none other than Walter Canby, the lawyer who had told the press that he intended to clean up Metropolis. Look at him, boss. Dead in that door now. <laughs> he was going to get me. <laughs> Stupid fools, he treats you. I'm amazed that any of you thought that display of fireworks bothered me. Or that I couldn't get out of this room if I wanted to. Look. Kid, let's go. Lois? Come on. I knew Clark would never come through with that story. Would you sign for this delivery, Mr. White? What? What's that? Clark Kent's page one story in the flesh. Walter Canby? You mean he... That's right. Walter Canby. Eminent attorney. Chairman of the Citizens Committee for Clean Government. And the number one man behind crime in Metropolis. Now you can print that statement Mr. Canby wanted you to print. There is no number one crime boss in Metropolis anymore. I love this episode. I just want to put that right out there. It's so good. Oh, great. And this episode will be the first of several guest stars. This is the first of four appearances on the show by John Eldridge. And is also the first of three appearances by Philip Van Zandt. You may have seen one or two different versions of this episode. The videos and DVDs released by Warner Brothers include the original 1951 edit. In this version, the opening montage does not have any narration and includes shots of violent death, such as a man being crushed to death between a truck and a wall of a loading dock. Even as a kid watching that on VHS, it's always giving me a little bit of a shudder when the guy there is squeezed between the truck and the dock. And now I've also seen the syndicated version, which was on TV when I was growing up. I know I saw it at one point because I remember the narration over the opening montage. And the montage is edited differently in the syndicated version, removing some of the violence, and it has narration added, which, according to TV.com, makes it easier to understand what is happening. Let me tell you something. You don't need narration with this opening montage. There are crimes being committed, guns are being fired, people are being squashed between loading docks and trucks. Yeah. There's criminal activity going on here, folks. You don't need a narration to tell you that. And But what's interesting enough is that the narrator mentions, in a narration that is absent from the DVD entirely, it says that Perry White was once the mayor of Metropolis, which I always found interesting when I watched that as a kid. Perry being mayor of Metropolis may refer to the Superman radio series in which Perry White was mayor from 1947 through 1949. And this is, and if Bob were here, he'd have asked me by now if I'd listened to any of the radio episodes. And I'd still tell him no, because, well, I haven't gotten to that yet. Right now, there are about 41 episodes and counting of podcasts that I haven't listened to on my phone. Anyway, one thing this montage shows really well is the time is passing. You know, you see the newspapers coming up, showing us what's going on. I'm pretty sure we've seen one or two of these papers in previous episodes. But the last paper shows that the planet is calling a protest meeting. And this is where we meet Walter Canby, a prominent attorney for the first time. And then Perry introduces Superman to the meeting, and Superman appears somewhat uncomfortable for a minute with the attention, but this is really the first time we've ever seen him in the show doing something public. Usually before this, we just saw Superman kind of show up to solve the problem at the end of the episode and then kind of just fly off. It was very rare to see Superman in the beginning of an episode like this. Now, we don't get to see what happens in this meeting as the episode goes straight to a guy hawking newspapers on the street. But I'm going to tell you something you may or may not have noticed here. If you look at the magazines behind the guy selling the newspapers, look at the one on the top right. The image on the cover looks like Superman, and I'm pretty sure that's an issue of Action Comics back there. I'm not sure about the other ones, but that one is definitely top right, Action Comics. 
Then we go on to another montage of Superman fighting crime, and this could all be taking place over the course of days. We don't really know, but Superman is fighting all kinds of crime. Not really much to say about it. We see Superman decking people, cop cars, several shots of him flying. This is a very Superman-heavy episode. Unlike the rest of the episode where it's mostly Clark Kent and the other planet crew solving a mystery, this time Superman is there throughout, he's doing things throughout, and this time Clark is the one who's kind of only around for a scene. Now we get the back of the head of a newscaster giving us the news on the first appearance, I believe, on the show of the Expositional News Network. Copyright Michael Bailey. Apparently, Superman has narrowed all the crime bosses down to the top 12, and he very quickly got it to number 6. This is, after all, a 20, only a 25-minute episode. You could probably do a whole movie of this. That'd be very interesting, but this show did it all in 25 minutes. And while he's fighting crime, Superman has plenty of time for speeches. He's talking in auditoriums, he's talking in women's groups, he's talking to everybody. Like I said, this is kind of the first time we've seen Superman kind of take any civic responsibility. He's just kind of... He just shows up at the end to deal with the problem, but he's just, he's all over the place. He's being very proactive, which is something we haven't always seen from Superman in this show, and really something we don't see in this show a lot. So, to see it now in the last proper episode of Season 1 is pretty cool. So, after the second montage, we see a couple of guys talking to their boss. Director Tommy Carr here is very careful not to show the face as the big boss is a mystery that even Superman doesn't know, and this mystery is developed throughout the episode. And the boss is going to pour it on. He wanted to see exactly how much will the police and, and Superman had. Well, he's finding out. So then we go to another montage. Help save money, fill out some time. More Superman fighting. I recognize some of these shots of Superman fighting. There's, I, I see a shot there from No Holds Barred in the, from the ending scene in the gym. One of my favorite fight scenes in the series, actually. And there's this shot where Superman picks up the guy and he straightens. I believe that's the museum robbery from the human bomb. Just about all of these action shots are from previous episodes. There's a shot where he just might have taken out Babyface Stevens from the Night of Terror, and then there's the extended fight sequence from the Mind Machine, which Superman was throwing people all over a cabin. This episode could almost be described as a clip show, and actually, on the DVD commentary, Chuck Harder described it as a bottle show, which... Bottle show was something that I had normally seen involved with Star Trek, which I guess the concept could work for other episodes too, but especially in Star Trek, there'd be an episode to save money where all the scenes would be on the, on the Enterprise or on Deep Space Nine or whatever setting is, to kind of to save money. And that's pretty much what they're doing here. They're saving money by using all the... They already have all these shots of Superman fighting, figure why refilm them. But given the nature of this show, why do I like it so much? I'll tell you why. Because even though these clips are recognizable from earlier episodes, I don't think I was able to identify shots from particular episodes before I started doing this podcast. I mean, they're quick. I'm pausing more. I'm looking just to see as much as I can other than just sitting here and just watching the episode. One of these days when I'm done with this, I'm going to have to go back and just watch these through and see if I see all that stuff again that I saw when I'm analyzing. The answer will probably be interesting. So anyway, the clips of Superman fighting make this episode seem a lot more action-packed than it probably is. But it is such a good episode. Such great story, such great mystery, and there's Walter Canby honoring Superman for his war on crime. That's a bit of irony that is not lost on me. You've already heard me read the synopsis. We know that Walter Canby is the number one man. And if you know Walter Canby is the number one man, you see all the tricks. Obviously, in the first scene, they show the back of his head. And then in the second scene, which we haven't gotten to yet, he's got a towel over his head. Another scene, the, number one, the boss is in the dark until he's revealed. So after more expo exposition on the news network, Superman narrows his list to number one, who we still don't know. And then we go to a meeting at the Daily Planet with Superman, Perry, Inspector Henderson, and Walter Canby. You've done a wonderful job, a miraculous job. Thank you, Mr. White. But the job isn't over yet. Practically every important gangster and racketeer has been arrested. But we still haven't got the number one man, Miss Lane. We don't even know who he is. Oh, I know you don't think there is a number one man, Mr. Canby. But take my word for it, there is. Well, can't you get any of these mobsters to talk? Not yet. Don't worry, Mr. White. I'll find him and I'll bring him in. That's a promise. Another interesting note. We, we know from the synopsis that it's Canby. 
he doesn't believe that there is a number one crime boss in Metropolis. And when Henderson says that to him, acknowledging that he doesn't believe it, Canby does not speak. He just shakes his head. In all the scenes that we see of Walter Canby, when he's Walter Canby, he never speaks. He only speaks when he's the boss or the number one man. Obviously, if Canby were to speak, that would give the whole thing away. So now the henchmen are panicking because they were grilled pretty hard by Henderson and they poured it on and the, and the organization has suffered. The boss is still getting work done. This time there's a towel on his face. So, we've so far we've seen the back of his head and now we've seen a towel over his face. And like I said, Canby never spoke. The boss is speaking. What the boss does is he's going to send Sally out to investigate the Daily Planet. And if she wasn't a criminal, she'd probably be a pretty good investigator with that little 8mm film camera that she's got. Sally comes back with a report, and they turn the lights off before the boss comes in. Now, on a fuzzy 1953 TV screen, you can't tell who it is. But looking at it on my computer monitor, even though I probably got the screen with down to probably about 7 inches, yeah, I can tell who it is. I can see John Eldridge's face clear as day. And Harry is showing her Daily Planet staff uh, profile video. She's got a pretty good close-up shots with no zoom lens. And no one seems to notice she was with him. There's a shot where she looks like she's right in the car with Lois. And Lois has no idea. The close-up shot she got of Henderson, you'd think Henderson would see her. Magic of TV. All of this footage is stock footage from other episodes. And we see the shot we see of Perry White hanging out by the uh, brick wall there. That is from the monkey mystery. And here's another point. The boss knows who Perry White is. Hmm... And with Henderson on this video is when we see our first shot of Clark Kent. Uh, up until now, every other shot we've seen of George Reeves has been Superman. And now here's where things get a little interesting. And where criminals get stupid. Sally gets a shot of Clark running down his favorite alley and Superman coming out. They play it twice. They actually play it back so you know that they realize there is something up with this. Yet, all they can figure out is that Clark knows Superman. Hello? Stupid criminals. This is why you always lose. That should have told you that Clark Kent is Superman. You have no excuses. You deserve what's going to happen to you now. So after all this, we see our first shot of Clark actually in the episode. 15 minutes in, and we're seeing Clark for the first time. That's probably the latest in any episode of this of this show. Apparently, Clark believes there is a number one man. And obviously he does, because Superman does. And I just noticed here for the first time, there's a nice shot of the Brooklyn Bridge in Perry's office. I'm going to have to keep a closer eye out for that. The tip comes in, asking Superman to meet the number one man at his place on Willow Falls, at Dover Hills, whatever it is. Clark is going to ask Perry to hold the front page while he goes after Miss Superman. He knows it might be a trap, but it could also be the payoff. Well, this episode is going to run, it's running out of time soon, so, so it's going to have to be the payoff. So then we go back to the house. We see the two men, that's Nikki and Eddie, and... This professor comes out of nowhere, because apparently, what criminal organization doesn't have a professor that can cook up weird scientific experiments? And he's awfully confident that he can kill Superman, and the professor is calm and collected, while the other two guys are nervous and sweating bullets. Which is probably not surprising, being that they've already run afoul of Inspector Henderson and Superman in this episode. I'd be pretty nervous, too, if I knew Superman was coming and I was trying to kill him. And I love how these frightened these guys are still when Superman shows. He comes in, they hear the door open, and these guys jump a hundred feet. And Superman walks right into the trap, and the doors close on him, and some animated electricity shows up. And Superman starts doing some dancing, working on George Reed, working his pantomime skills. And this trap here with the electricity reminds me of one of those traps that we would see all the time in the Kirk Allen serials. Remember those? Somebody walk in a room and the building catch on fire, or somebody hit a button, the room filled with gas. It's kind of called back to that a little bit for me. And the criminals are buying it. Right now, Jimmy and Lois really don't have much to do in this episode. They just kind of sit around all day talking. And right now, they're just kind of sitting there waiting for Clark to bring the story in. You know, judging of what we've seen of Lois in this first season, that's got to be unbearable for her just to sit there and wait for him to bring the story in. She wants to be out there and getting the story. But the goal of both Lois and Jimmy is to sit there and wait because they're all curious about whether or not Clark can actually pull this off. Well, they're waiting. Superman is still dancing to the electric beat, and then he falls to the ground and collapses eventually. The professor says Superman's dead and calls for the boss. Now, obviously, the, prof the professor checked Superman's left chest 
for his heartbeat, but you know what? Professor, Superman is from another planet. It is possible that his heart is in a different place. And I don't know much about Kryptonian body temperature, but I would think if Superman really were dead, his body would turn a little cold. It's probably a little warm for him to be dead, but I guess since he's not moving, that's enough. Well, anyway, then we take another quick shot back to the planet to find out that it's too late and the bulldog has to run. And it's the first time Clark has left Harry down. And then we get our revelation. The boss is Walter Canby. And apparently, as we all know, it was a Superman super fake out. And I love the line out of Superman's mouth about how he was surprised that anybody thought the display of fireworks bothered him. And I love how he punches the wall to show that he could have gotten out any time he wanted. These guys played right in his hands. They set a trap for Superman, but Superman turned the trap around on them. Classic Superman outsmarting his enemies. Which is not always something you saw in the Golden Age. In the Golden Age, Superman kind of dealt with his fists a lot more. So, to see Superman using his brain and outsmarting people is refreshing to see. Now, after Superman punches the wall, they still try to run off. But really, where are they going to go? They're done. They're toast. There's nowhere to go. They fight. You know, Chuck Harder mentioned the, something rather specific. And I'm, I've always assumed Superman was just controlling his strength. But if Superman really punched these guys, you'd be seeing heads splattering all over the place. But even that might be roughing them up a little bit too much for 1950s TV. But what's not too much for 1950s TV is that Walter Canby, when Superman brings him back to the Daily Planet, Canby looks as though he's been beaten up. He's got a black eye and a bloody lip, so Superman roughed him up a little bit, and I like seeing that. I like seeing Superman do his job and get the bad guy. And it's just a great ending sequence with Superman declaring that there's no number one crime boss in Metropolis anymore. And the fireworks here are doubly important. They signify two things. Not only does it signify, obviously, Superman's obvious triumph on bringing in the number one man behind all the crime in Metropolis, but it also signifies the end of a successful season one of The Adventures of Superman. Combine that with the final scene of Superman dropping off Canby, proclaiming that there's no number one crime boss in Metropolis anymore. It's just a perfect way to end season one of The Adventures of Superman. And for about six months, this would be the end of season one. As like I mentioned in the opening, this episode was aired in late February. Superman and the Mole Men would be cut into the Unknown People two-parter and aired later on August 10th. Six months later. Ironically, the Unknown People actually aired closer to Season 2 than to Season 1. Of course, though, the main link to Season 1 being Phyllis Coates. As we all know, as Season 2 was filmed in 1953, two years after Season 1, Phyllis Coates was no longer available. That pretty much concludes my coverage of Season 1 of The Adventures of Superman. Like I said, The Unknown People two-parter was covered as Superman in the Mole Men way back on episode 16. Next time, I am going to head right into Season 2 with Five Minutes to Doom and The Big Squeeze. If you have anything to say regarding my coverage of Season 1 of The Adventures of Superman, or really anything I've spoken about on the podcast, please feel free to send me an email at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over in the Facebook group. You can find that by searching for the Man of Screen podcast. I'm also on Twitter. You can find me there on at Man of Screencast. The show can be found on iTunes, and also it can be found on Google Play. Apparently, I just found out the other night that I've been on Google Play for months and didn't know about it. I must have started the process and then finished it. So You can find me there, too, folks. I'm on iTunes. And on Google Play and on Stitcher, too. So you can also leave me a review on iTunes. That'll help other people find the show, too. So until next time, folks, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all the opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is 
manofscream.automatic.com and you can email the show at manofscream at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.